What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Dish Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all of support and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform. And make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Dish Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Cal, how you doing? Welcome to the platform. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for having me, brother. Now, this is important, you know. Um, you're running for a criminal court judge, Division Three. I'd like to think so. That's correct. Yeah. Yes, sir. And so, um, eight years. Yeah, man. Possibly. Yeah. So, we got to talk about that. Yes, we do. <laughs> she was a lot of time. Right, right. Yeah. And, uh, before we get into that, um, for those who might not know who Cal is, um, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, originally from Richmond, Virginia. Correct. Came here, went to fish. Tell us a little bit about that. Just not the whole journey, because you Understand. know. <laughs> I ain't but just, yeah, but yeah, give us an abbreviated. Yeah, give us an abbreviated. Like just who Cal is. Well, I've spent half my life in Nashville. I got here when I was 18, 2001, to go to Fisk University, which I always say is one of the best decisions I ever made. Um, I left to go to law school for three years in Des Moines, Iowa, and came back in 2009, and have been here starting my criminal defense practice. You know from having no clients to having many clients now. Um, I started, my work is mostly criminal defense, if not all, but I started getting pro bono work, which is clients that could not afford to hire an attorney that the judge would appoint me to. And so through that, I built a successful private practice and have worked for the last three years as a judicial magistrate until I resigned so that I could run for office. Wow, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> And I want to get on that magistrate because yeah, I know bail, you yeah, know, certainly. bail, That's cash, fair. money, bad. This yes. is this is this is big. Yeah, um, man, um, how did how did fish change your you know your perspective on things? Being in the city of Nashville, yeah. civil rights, yeah, all these historical prominent figures coming through for just the work in the community that fish represents. Yes, it gave me audacity. It dared me to do as much as I thought I could and then try to find a further place to go. Mm. It, you know, when you're walking in the same hallways and places as Du Bois, Diane Nash, John Lewis, I mean, you know, you cannot but help to feel a sense of pride just simply being there, right. you know, and who you are and what your trajectory is going to be. You know, I, I don't know if a fist guy can, any fist guy can say they weren't really kind of defined or shaped by the time they sent there, they spent at the university. And so Fisk, I always say, like, you know, although small, it's got a huge global impact. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I just, I, I couldn't remove that from me and my thought process and psyche about everything, right. you know, going forward. Man, what was your what was your family, your friends, your close peers say about Cal growing up in Richmond, Virginia? <laughs> that dude's running for judge. Like, <laughs> uh, I was man, look, class clown. I was, you know, the fun guy, the good friend. I'm an only child, and so, you know, I would say I, I, I treat my friends like brothers and sisters, you mm -hmm. know, because it was just me and my mom. My dad passed when I was ten, and mm -hmm. so. Growing up, you know, friendship was everything to me. And I've got just some incredible, 
lifelong friends, like from elementary school. And so, you know, what they would say now is how proud they are of me and that they, they're really happy that things worked out. And so, but it's just, it's funny kind of going back, seeing teachers and stuff like that, you know. Like, I mean, I did a little hair raising, but nothing crazy, but just right. I was to see kind of now where right. things are, you know, it shows kind of the, the wide depth I'd like to say I've got, you right. know. So. Right. And how did uh, Richmond, Virginia build your character? Because this is this is my introduction to Richmond. Yeah. Coach Carter. That's my introduction to right. Richmond, Virginia, right? right. And so you see that and say, oh wow, like that's right. That's a that's a, that can be a tough place to grow up. Okay, so here, quick little spot check. That's California, right? Okay. Richmond, Virginia. Now, Richmond, Virginia had some you know, one of the things that was really instrumental is Monument Street. I don't know right. if you've heard about that, but one of the biggest things that was happening when I was there was this uproar about Andrew Ashe being added to Monument Avenue. Mm. Monument Avenue was one of the most famous roads, you know, very similar to like a Broadway or a Poplar in Memphis, but it was this avenue that had nothing but Confederate generals in huge statues. It's very famous now from the Black Lives Matter movement that they took it down. That's that very famous one with the guy on the horse that was right. taken down. That was one of the major Confederate generals. And to now kind of see, you talk about something that you would never imagine happening in your lifetime. Like, you know, Monument Avenue was just synonymous with Richmond, Virginia. And this idea that in the time that I've been alive, to think about, you know, just how in Embedded that was to now having seen it removed, right. it's it's fascinating. And so, Richmond was transformative in that, you know. Obviously, I I found myself. You know, I had a great upbringing. Right, I was very fortunate with my mom. You know, she was the breadwinner. And so, even when my dad passed, you know, a lot of things changed. Obviously, but my way of life was consistent. And so. Um, you know, she raised me right, and so I was able to find outlets, find friends, right. you know, participate in things like Jack and Jill, right. uh, very involved with church. I grew up Episcopalian, and so I was first server, second server, and thurifer, you know, the guy with the incense, like you yeah. see. And so, yeah. so yeah. Um, wow. Richmond was really, really great, you know. Not a lot of stuff to do for a kid, but, you know, it was, I had, I made do, you know, right. so yeah. What um, inspired you or drew you to the, the, the criminal legal system? So it, it's funny. I, I knew from the very beginning, you know, I wanted to help people. Initially, my goal was more consumer protection. You know, like one of the reasons like I, I went to law school was just kind of this idea of these big, huge corporations, you know, that make you sign these little uh, end-user license agreements for like cell phones and stuff like that. You know, I wanted to help the little guy. You know, right. then I get to law school and one of my professors is in criminal excuse me, in consumer protection, and said that, yeah, she's got one case that took seven years before it settled. And I said, oh, okay. I said, well, <laughs> let me, let's do some reevaluation. Uh, in law school, took some advanced criminal procedure classes and did well. And so didn't really know at the time that I had an aptitude for it, but just kind of those things made sense. Um, came out, uh, oh, excuse me, came back to Tennessee, took the bar, and started working at a personal injury firm uh, with Lavelle Glanton, actually, because that's who I interned for when I was here uh, in college over the summer. And, you know, I was having a good time. It was fun, but just there was something missing. I didn't get to go to court as much as I'd like. Mm -hmm. And so 
after about a year, I start going up to the Birch Building just to get cases because I realized one of my one of the benefits, one of the things I'm really good at is oral advocacy, right? Which is kind of talking with people, communicating. Right. And, you know, those first few months, you know, I like to joke, uh, <laughs> wife and I had a new baby on the way, right? I have left this job to now go start on my own, you know? And I remember that first year, man, maybe I made, gosh, two to $4,000, you know, just from appointed work because, wow. you know, when the I say year. Like, here in Nashville, right, wow. you know, just started from nothing, right, right. because you got to go up there, you've got to ingratiate yourself with the judges, you've got to appear competent and be competent so that they can give you cases, you know, right. had a lot to learn, but um, through kind of successfully representing clients, being consistent, you know, uh, getting favorable judgments, and, right. you know, then my practice grew, and right. so, but what happens is, you know, when you start in that crucible of pro bono appointed work, right? you really are helping and talking with some of the most vulnerable people in the city, you know, right. because these are people who might be in jail on simple possessions because they didn't have the money to pay even a $100 bond, right? right. These are people that heck, sometimes choose to stay in jail mm -hmm. because they don't have anywhere else to go. Right. And so... You know, um, you cannot help, you know, if you're doing representation and advocacy correct, you shouldn't be able to do it without getting to know the person you're representing. And right. so a lot of just in, because they don't know me from John, right? So I'm this new guy coming in and like, oh, I'm your lawyer. You've never met me before, but I've got your back, right? And everything right. you say to me is going to be kept between us. Well, that's a hard dynamic for someone who has maybe had lawyers that weren't so great before. That's hard for someone who is, you know, this idea of, okay, I'm being paid by the state to represent you, but I'm not in league with the state, right? I am right. still only your advocate. So a lot of kind of misconceptions and barriers had to be broken. And in those conversations is where I learned a lot about the people I was representing, the impact that this criminal justice system has had. And so it it really, once I got it, I was hooked. And right. so, because I knew that, okay, it might not be consumer protection, but right. I can be someone's champion. I can right. be someone's advocate and use the gifts and blessings that God has given me to help someone who is more vulnerable. What changes in your perspective did you see once you got into the criminal defense oh, side yeah. of it? Um, because you talk about that dynamic yeah. and you, you're working with people who can't, won't be able to afford an attorney, right? Yeah. Indigent defense, and so um, now you're, you're now you getting to look at like what justice may or may not be like for particular people. I mean, you hit the nail on the head, right? This first off, dignity and humanity. You know, it it broke my heart sometimes. Just the things that, like, well, I appreciate you speaking to me as an equal, right? I appreciate you talking with me and explaining to me this process or just understanding that, you know, I was in a bad spot and still wanting to help despite what has been done. And I'm thinking, well, you know, every attorney should be like that, you know, and saying like, you know, like they're thanking me for what I think is the bare minimum someone should be doing. Right. And so that's to your question kind of what opened my eyes that, you know, there are so many 
different entries into the criminal justice system, whether it's law enforcement or whether it's, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be able to, to go to jail and post the bond to get out, but then might not be able to hire a lawyer to get right. a lawyer that isn't really trying to listen to you or do what you want or right. daring to go to court by yourself and hoping that, well, because you think the case is simple or that, you know, this didn't happen and you're innocent, you know, but then being rejected by judges or court officers for any number of things. And right. so, you know, it's those conversations and then just living it, right? Because, you know, I am running for judge in Davidson County, but I've been to 90% or I've represented someone in 90% of all the counties in Tennessee, right? right? You know, I've gone as far as Memphis and as far as Knoxville, you right. know? And so I've seen kind of firsthand, you know, the advancements that Davidson County has and some of the things that they are very good at compared to a lot of other things. And I've seen kind of how bad it can get in some of these other smaller counties that right. even with good representation, you are fighting not just a person or a judge, but a whole system that right. was designed even before I was hired right. to keep you behind the eight ball. Let's talk about this system, right? Because mm -hmm. I think um, that's what a lot of people want to trying to figure out how can we change the system? How can we reimagine, reconstruct? Yeah. Some of the things that have historically been in place that affect primarily black and brown and poor folks. Sure. Um, potentially being a criminal court judge for eight years, um, how, can you, how do you see your role in being able to, to um, pivot into some new things uh, that the system is just you know, not doing very well. Um, you know, how can we get away from things being so discriminatory and create these disparities, you know, again, primarily on black and brown folks and poor folks that, you know, just can't, like, afford it, can't bond out, um, can't get the right representation, feel like they're being targeted, right, <laughs> by our criminal legal yeah. system. All of these things. How do how how does how does you taking this step into, you know, potentially being a judge or criminal court playing to all of those things? I think the first thing it, it starts with acknowledgement, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there are some people that would hear what you just said, and would think you're on a different planet, or that that's not the case. Um, daring this concept of justice is blind. You know, I said, yeah, justice has got to be real blind because <laughs> there are a lot of things happening under the name of justice that, you know, with someone peeking or looking should notice these disparities that people of color are inherently more tied to the criminal justice system and that people without means are much more negatively affected for the exact same offenses just simply because they don't have the money to pay for it or to be able to live their life in a way to where they could still go to work and still be able to come to court as opposed to staying in custody. Right. You know, eight years, right? And I'm thinking, why eight? You know, because change is slow, it's grueling work. And, you know, if you can, you know, but change is worth it. Change is difficult, and ch but change has to be steadfast and focused. Um, one of the things as a criminal court judge, and for any judge, is that to know the law, okay, stay current on the law. Well, again, I think that's the bare minimum, right? You know, like obviously, you know, you need to know the law. 
But I think that this idea of justice being blind in an attempt to take out the human part of justice to kind of make these judges robots, I think that on one end, I understand that concept and this belief that, okay, um, you know, if, if, if I'm blind and I just do exactly what the law says, then the results have to be equal. Right. But it is a fact that any bright line rule or anything that applies to everybody is going to statistically affect black and brown folk more. Right? That's just a fact. Just a fact. Okay. So... As judge, especially criminal court, you know, a lot of things have, would have already happened before you come to my court, you know. But what could I do? Understanding that the many people that have been coming to court, okay, it would, be, it would be on the judge, I think, to make sure that all of the attorneys representing their clients are competent based on what the charge is, and based on what the needs of the defendant are, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, that seems like a very simple thing, but that's quasi-radical, you know, this idea of a judge understanding and making sure, because, you know, attorneys will ask for cases or want to be appointed, and, you know, if they don't feel like doing the extra work or if they don't want to do the research or understand that, okay, that yes, you can have this case, but you have to treat this case the same way you would if someone gave you a million dollars. You know, so often, you know, my, my clients would be talking with me and saying, okay, well, um, well, what if I can pay you or what if I can do this? And I would always say, look, you don't have to worry about that part, right? You right. are going to get the best I have no matter what, because I wouldn't be your attorney if I right. wasn't going to do my best. Right. And so being a defense attorney, you know, I'd like to think I know what that looks like. I'd like right. to think that I understand that. All right. Um, yeah. I'll, you bring up something, um, you know, a fascinating thing, too, that is, I guess, might be kind of radical because we hear in the community about judge-appointed attorneys mm -hmm. and them not being adequate enough to really represent, you know, the case that they've been given to, the client that they've been uh, appointed to. Right. Um, and it kind of can seem like a conflict of interest, right? Sure. Okay, so you... So the same, the, the judge that I came was going to appoint me an attorney that, that he or she may have some type of relationship with. Who, know, who knows what that may be? Who knows what's happening on the side? And so to hear you say that you're going to basically have accountability, hold accountability. Well, and, and, and I am inspired by the public defenders of this amazing county. I mean, like, because I tell you this, there is a bad rap about public defenders in film and TV, whatever, but that does not apply here in Nashville. I, I tell you, you know, these people are working tirelessly. And under mm -hmm. Martisa Johnson's leadership, you know, she has demanded and required that, you know, judge, we can't have a hundred cases and then call ourselves effective. It is unfair to us to be just given and pushed all of these cases under the name of justice or expediency, right. you know. And so what happens is while she can champion it for her team and for the people under her office, it's not the same for if someone is a conflict, because a good example is two people are arrested, okay? Public defender will get one. Well, because the public defender has, that whole office is now conflict. So now the judge has to look for an attorney who was willing to take the case, right. right? And again, there are a lot of amazing attorneys that are seeking work and want to help. 
one of the big things is, you know, when I talk about is the mental health, right? Mm -hmm. Especially for people of color, you know, they are very hesitant to go and seek treatment, to even try to get an understanding of what's happening. Right. But so often I will have a client who uh, they get in trouble and the first thing the family says is we've known something was wrong. We've known something was up, that he needed help, but just, you know, didn't get to it, didn't want to. And so, and now we're looking at this defense and saying, okay, well clearly this person has a diminished capacity because of some type of mental health illness and there is no record of it. Right. And so it's hard work, you know, I, you know, and so I'd have to go and create a record. I'd have to go make sure I could get them into the services mm -hmm. that would benefit them because, again, you know, the criminal justice system has been limited to, okay, a little bit of jail time, a lot of jail time, right. or a whole bunch of probation, you right. know. And none of that addresses what might be the root causes for the behavior that got them there in the first place. Right. And so not to just pick on the attorneys, but you've, you've got to know how to do that. You've got to know where to find that. But to bring it back to judge, and this is the other kind of radical idea is, you know, I said that the bare minimum for a judge is to remain knowledgeable of the law, right? Mm -hmm. So sure, check. But I also think a judge needs to do more. Like one of the things that I, I am going to be doing is welcoming vendors and talking with providers of different services for all walks of life, right? right. You know, it's not going to be any type of limitation. I'm going to just want to hear right. and know about it. A lot of times now the judges will kind of sit and be waited to be presented information right. about what the defense attorney or the state believes is happening. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to research or be getting too involved in the case beforehand, but people will know that if you come to my court, there will be a slew of options available. Right. That at least the access, because that's part of the problem too, right. it's the access. It's there for the people that can afford right. good attorney who's been practicing, who knows how to do it. Right. But that shouldn't be the case for the people who don't, right? Because everybody should be able to have those same services for the criminal justice system. Right. You know. How do we, because once they get to you, a mm -hmm. lot of stuff has occurred, sure. like you said. What role can you play or be at least an advocate for as judge to prevent community members from just being victims at all, right? 90% of people come home. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff happens before they get to you. Yeah. Before we get to all of, before they get to you, how can we how can we stop them to getting to you in general? And what like in what role could a judge play into that or somebody that has your kind of decision making power? play into like, hey, I don't even want to see, I want my courtroom to be empty, ideally, right? Right. right. You know, how can I be a part of that? You know, it, 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 it's funny that, you know, if, if we are all doing the job correctly, that hopefully in a century from now, we won't be needed, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's a very lofty goal and a dream. But, but again, I think what happens is, you know, there are six criminal court judges in, that cover Davidson County, okay? And depending on the day you are arrested is what determines which judge you go in front of. It's, it's that simple. It's kind of a two-week rotation. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at kind of a judge like an individual island, you know, meaning that, you know, whatever the cases are that come directly to them, they kind of have sole jurisdiction on and can affect, it gets out. The right. judge sets the pulse. If you've got a judge that is tough, 
that is, you know, leans to the prosecutorial side, the people in the courtroom know that, right? right? The probation officers of that judge know that. Law enforcement know that. And so they, you know, they push the envelope, they may overcharge, they may set a higher bond, they may do all of these things under the belief that, well, this judge is going to, this is this judge's thought process, this is this judge's psyche, right. okay? A lot of the things that I would be doing as judge, you know, I don't have to call out or say, right. it would just be understood. Like right. I could, you know, because a judge, you try your best not to want to step in, right? right. You know, you, you know, if if the judge is handling it, that means that there is a disagreement between the parties, and th that's why we have judges, right? right? And so you want to make sure not to be too influential, but they also you can set a tone and understand that, like, okay, well, Judge Parks isn't going to to go for that because we know that because we've seen that right. Judge Parks isn't, and it was very easy to be pro-law enforcement. It was very easy to be pro, put people in jail, tough on crime. You know, right. that was, everybody got behind that, you know. And now what we've seen is this shift in, kind of with the opioid epidemic, oh, we realize, oh, so locking everybody up isn't the way to treat addiction, right? right? You know, presuming that people who can't find help the first time, well, we gave them one chance, let's just let them go away, right. you know. And I think that if it gets out and they see you know, what it's like in my courtroom, they will understand that, okay, he's going to ask these questions. Right. He's going to want to make sure these bases have been covered. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's impossible sitting to try to think about kind of all the different scenarios. Right. But having been a defense attorney for over a decade, right. you know, it's, it's rare that it's going to be something that I've not seen or would come up in front of me. Right. But I understand that the difference would be the involvement. And because, again, you know, I am duty-bound to keep Davidson County safe. Right. And so the decisions I make, I understand and should be scrutinized by everybody who lives here. Right. That doesn't mean I can't ask different questions. That right. doesn't mean I can't have alternative thinking and how best to do that. Right. And so, it, it, you know, I, I go back to audacity. You know, I go back to this idea that, you know, we have tried these things and right. we've seen where we've gotten. And I think we can all agree that criminal justice reform is needed. You know, some people found out through George Floyd, others know, have known for a very, very long time that things have to be different. And so, you know, I am, um, you know, it's, I, I'm just going to say, you know, I, I tell people that, you know, I want to be judged because I believe I can make a difference. I believe that you know, because I care, I know the intricacies and some of the traps that happen, right? Mm. But I don't have to be a judge, right? I'm a really good attorney. Right. And so I'm not going to be up there worried or second guessing that, oh, someone could come and get me or someone, because if I get up there and do what everybody else is doing, then what is the purpose of me running? Right. right? If I get up there and you can't distinguish me from what has already been, right. then I've wasted my time and everyone else's. Right. And so, you know, it's this daring to do something different, being guided by faith, guided by a belief that I want to do the right thing for everyone. Right. Understanding, like, you'll see that my... my uh, 
slogan is balance the scales of justice. Right. And what I mean by that is we know and acknowledge that certain people in front of the system have been impacted and affected more. Right. Just acknowledging that is such a key battle and difference in what has been said before. Right. We also know that victims' rights in certain cases are not being as loud as they should be, particularly domestic violence. Mm -hmm. um, Which is like 50% of, of crime here in the city. That's, that's absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. And um, I might jump ahead on you, but working as a magistrate, I did it during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And you would just be, I mean, heartbroken at this. Everyone's at home. Nobody's out, so crime goes down. But I tell you, domestic violence skyrocketed, wow. you know. And that was my very kind of eye-opening experience of just both sides, a different side, you know, because I would see these women, right. you know, who'd come in with two black eyes and needs assistance right. to get up to the window to even tell me what happened for then, one reason or another, for that case to be dismissed 15 days later, mm -hmm. you know. And so... I understand that on both ends, work needs to be done. Because and then the, the quickest form is that nobody wants to be in my court, right? Whether you are a victim or a defendant, right. nobody wants to be in criminal court, okay? But if you are there, what can we do to make, you, to make sure you still have your personhood, to make sure that your dignity and humanity, because you've not lost any of that just right. simply being accused for a crime and as a victim, your voice has to be amplified as well to make sure that that balance happens. You brought up some um, very critical points, I think, of like, what well, got me thinking, got my mind percolating <laughs> a little bit. And I think it was, I think it's a powerful quote. If, if, if I'm not going to do something different that's already, you know, happening, why, why should I run? Yeah. Right. And so you are, you do have an opponent. You do have an incumbent. I do. What have you seen or haven't seen um, from the from the incumbent that that gives you that drive, that gives you that confidence, that just that knowing like we do need something different for the next eight years here in Nashville that is not happening. Going back to the justice is blind, and that if I follow the law the way I see fit, that whatever the result, then I've done the right thing. I think that that is so limiting as a analytical process. I think that the treatment of substance abuse, particularly mental health, is not focused on enough with respect to punishment or even supervision. You know, a judge can get lost in the weeds getting into the why. But because of the disparities, because of the things we know are happening, we have to ask different questions, right? You know, like you talk about, we're talking about a system that's over 200 years old. And there are some really, really great things about it. But now that we have seen the impact it's had as a system as it's designed now, you know, if we don't do anything different, it will stay the same. Right. I think that the... The biggest thing is just this lack of care, a, a lack of compassion, right. um, an understanding that whoever is in front of you still requires 
and demands dignity, humanity. I think that, you know, the court has gotten cold. Right. And it doesn't mean that, oh, we're going to be buddy-buddy with the judge. Right. But it's already a stressful place. It's already a nerve-wracking instance to be in court. Right. And so the energy you exude, Right, you are still a public servant above all else. Right. right, you are a public servant to the very person that you're going to be sentencing. Right, and I think that that impact and that power can sometimes be lost with respect to the decisions that are made. Right, you know. Do you feel like with the with the incumbent now, and you talk about just a lot the scales of justice, right? Do you feel like it's been more of a justice system or more of a punishment system? I think that if the only options are, you know, we put, we, you know, I, I talk about, so you give someone a $50,000 bond, okay? They can't make it, so they're in jail, all right? They're talking with their lawyer. They say, hey, you know, if you want to get out, you, uh, they'll let you out, but you got to go, you got to take 10 years of probation, okay? Well, this person might have had a job. This person might have been working. This person, uh, probably had a family, probably had someone that was depending on them, and can afford to stay here for the next six weeks waiting on another court date, hoping or maybe thinking that something would change. There is a lack of analysis with what could be done specifically for this person that might be better attuned to make sure that their recidivism can stay low. Because we, we look at recidivism kind of globally on a macro scale, you know, and kind of recidivism rates are high. Well, you know, it will be impossible to try to apply something that works for everybody because this is when the individuality of the defendant is most important, you know. Right. I say that the whole system, right, was developed for the person accused for the crime, everybody else are players. But you know, the rules are about what the defendant should get or not get that would make it fair. You know, with respect to punishment, I think that that all goes back to what you've heard, the war on drugs, you know, these, um, you know, they were called super predators and one of the big kind of misconceptions are, you know, the treatment of the justice system for people that have committed violent crimes versus nonviolent crimes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't believe you should get 94 years in jail for a nonviolent offense because in Tennessee, if you killed someone in cold blood, you'd be looking at 51 years. Right. And so we talk about these numbers in decades in time, you know, and there are violent people out there, and there are people that, unfortunately, the only end game for them is going to have to be custody, right? I'm not coming in here saying that, you know, I believe it's all sunshine and rainbows, right? but this idea that in order for the community to be safe, or in order to show the impact and the power of the justice system that the more people that are locked up or the more people that are on probation as a kind of litmus test for it being successful is very flawed, you right. know. Well, we know that statistically, right? We, we locking up more people than anybody 
and LA first world country, yeah. and, and crime still exists. Come on, and it's not; it hasn't decreased. Yeah, right. Um, justice. Mm -hmm. Keep going back to this word, justice. What does that mean to you? I know it's a loaded question. Mm -hmm. No, that's what, fine. It's what, just what, it's, what, it's heavy. Yeah. yeah, it's it's heavy. What does that mean, and and, and what does that look like? Because I think that's important for for Nashville community members to know, especially for voters to know. What does justice look like to that person that that could potentially be on that bench in Division Three criminal court judge? I need to know what he or she think justice is, and what that looks like. Justice has to be equitable, okay, which is different from equality, right? right? I think the you know for for the longest time equality was kind of this test used for justice, but. Each person that comes in is different, right? Mm -hmm. You think of an example like, you know, if someone, if Bill Gates comes to court, you know, he could be given a bond of $10,000, okay? And then someone else comes to court, Joe Blow off the street, they get a bond for $10,000. Well, that's equal, right. right? But none of the factors of who that person is, where that person is from, I think are asked in a sense that could make it equitable. It's going to require a lot of work. It's going to require a lot of walking on lines that are razor edge sharp because, again, with this balance, you know, it's not saying that, oh, well, these people are going to be able to come in and get more benefit from the judge because traditionally they have been underserved. But it does mean that with that acknowledgement and understanding, asking more questions and going deeper and it what works best for justice to be achieved for this person right. might be completely different for someone else and that's not bad or unequal it's just different and right. different is okay right. if it's purpose driven right. if it's knowledgeable difference right. is okay if there is a focus on the person and what makes things better for everyone, not just the defendant, but right. for the victim as well, or right. whatever the incident may be. Right. I want to go back to your magistrate day. Sure. As a judicial magistrate. And, and you, you get into looking at people's different circumstances. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think um, money bail, cash bail. True. And there's been a lot of talks about what that looks like reform around that. Some people believe there should not be a price amount attached to a human body in general um, in our criminal legal system. Um, I know from the state of Tennessee, well, I think actually is the state of Tennessee, I can't, or maybe I think the Constitution of Tennessee actually is just like, hey, everybody has a right to a bail. Mm -hmm. um, however, <laughs> similar offenses, similar criminal backgrounds could have drastically different bail amounts. Uh, and some people just don't understand how magistrates are usually the sure. ones um, making those bail judgments and, and giving down those bills. That's not usually the, what judges do um, a lot of times. Um, walk us through that process sure. and, and, and help us make sense of how Jerome and Kyle could have similar offenses, similar criminal backgrounds, um, but have like your bail could be 10000 Mine could be twenty thousand or thirty thousand. Like, um, how does that how does that happen? How does that work out? So, one of the things with bail is, and one of the most important things to remember is that bail is not meant to be punitive, right? right? 
And I believe for a long time it was. That might not have been the intention, but that was the impact, that it became punitive, meaning that, you know, you can't set a bond for someone believing that they won't be able to make it as a driving force as to why you've set it so high. Right. Now, I, I want to give Davidson County some props because uh, I started on as a magistrate in 2018. And there was a push and a drive to, to lower or to not just keep kind of the status quo for bond amounts. And it's, and it's a tricky business because, you know, of all the magistrates, they are at the time when they are over that case, they're kind of like, you know, many judges, you know. Mm -hmm. And so the system isn't going to work if someone's coming in second-guessing and checking after them each and every time a bond is set. But there is no register for, you know, okay, if you get this crime or this charge, you'll be, you, the bond's going to be this amount. Right. And I think that that's good if all of the right questions are being asked. Um, I think that now in that scenario where, okay, same charge, similar background, and but a wide gap in bond amounts, I think those are those implicit biases or maybe those unnoticed bias that people have about being able to relate or see maybe themselves or see their grandchildren mm -hmm. that have not had any pushback or not have any forced level of understanding to say, hey, is this happening? Am I doing this? You know, a lot of times, the, well, the questions are written out the factors, right? You know, are you from Tennessee, right? right. That's gonna, that's a huge thing, right? Do you, and if you are from Tennessee, how long? Do you have community ties to this state or this town, all right? Um, was someone hurt in what you did? Right. Because that's also because, you know, we talk about keeping Davidson County safe, but also we have to keep the alleged victim safe as well. Right. Um, this is when I go to the trying to find alternatives, right? Because, you know, if someone is charged with a, a violent crime or something heinous, then the idea is, okay, th that deserves a higher bond or a bond that is so high that you have to bring in source of income to show that it's not, the money you're using to get out isn't ill-gotten gains, okay? Right. But that again is limited to can you raise this money or can your family afford this money, you know? And judges traditionally have been hesitant to lower bonds or to give a low bond on violent offenses. That seems counterintuitive to the idea that everyone is presumed innocent, right? right? And so the evidence presented might suggest, okay, that the state's case is strong, which is another factor as to should bail be lowered or not. But if we get into supervision, right, particularly like right now, ankle monitors or GPS monitoring, okay, it's still tough because a lot of times it's $10 a day, right, which is at least $300 and you gotta pay for the, the bracelet, you gotta, you know, come and get checked on it. Right. But I think that if we can expand or find money or grants for those services, then that's a good way to have someone who is charged with something that, you know, we wanna make sure we can keep a close eye on you. However, your presumption of innocence means that, you know, you don't have a history. And so although you've been charged with something, you know, 
that would allow more space for a judge to be able to lower a bond mm -hmm. to, that a family could afford, but require that, okay, while this is pending, right. I got to make sure, and, and until I see otherwise, right? right? And so those avenues, asking those questions, hoping to get services like that, more people involved, not just family, but, but objective people to hold these individual persons accountable are a way to kind of get around this requirement that bail be skyrocketed high mm -hmm. in order to ensure that, okay, well, well they're on a $250,000 bond, but someone could still pay it. And right. then what? You know, they are, whatever threat they were going to be, right. they're still the same, even if their family could afford to get them out. Right. And a lot of times, people are motivated to come to court because that's the right thing to do. Right. You know, it, it, it's, you know, jumping bail or not coming to court is an issue, but I know a lot of times it's a fear of the process. Mm -hmm. I think going back to who the judge is, the tone that is set, if my court officers are respectable to the people that are there, mm -hmm. if my staff understands that, you know, you, we are better than no one here. And even as the judge, no person who comes before me is worse off or better than I am. Right. I think people will feel better about the process. Because, again, I've said it's already crappy to be in criminal court, right? right. Now, have a, whatever way you slice it, it's going to be tough. Right. But I think that, again, you've got that. And then this belief that, well, they don't care about me. All they want to do is lock me up, but they're going to talk funky to me because of some question I may have or some this and that, you know. And I believe that that's where, as a judge who controls that courtroom, you figure in those four walls, you know, you are king or queen. And so, right. but your temperament, your ability to not be quick to anger, your ability for understanding, your ability for knowing how a multifaceted group of people of all races, all backgrounds might act or respond and not use your own psyche and beliefs that, well, if someone's acting like this, mm -hmm. that must mean that we've got to handle them harshly or do right. something else. Right. And I think that's just that shared experience of just kind of having known what it's like. You know, right. you feel like crime is a young person's game. Statistically, younger people are in, in trouble more, right. you know? And so I talk about, you know, being 19 years old and one night, one day, one event will shape and change the rest of your life. Right. And so you need someone that understands that weight, that has spoken to the mothers and fathers and family members and pleaded and begged for some type of help, for some semblance that my son or daughter matters and that right. they aren't just going to be thrown away. Speaking of community and diverse community here in Nashville, I say we, I, I like to say we diversely, segregatedly, diversely, segregatedly diverse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, that cultural competence, right, is important, I think, to have for any uh, elected official, especially a judge when you may be seeing people from all different backgrounds, skin tones, mm -hmm. ethnic groups, religious yes. backgrounds, who knows. Um, how have you, you know, as a criminal defense attorney, yeah. right, being able to tap in and stay connected, right, yeah. uh, with different parts of Nashville, and how do you continue to do that um, if judge here? In sure. I, I tell you, you know, one of the parts, so I'm a first-time candidate, right? So I've not run for anything like this before in my life. Right. Um, the highlights of the campaign has been the engagement from everyone, you know, black community, white community, any 
I was just yesterday at this amazing New Rise Festival for Kurdish Pride. Kurdish New Year. You know, that, that ability to be out and engage with people and have them see someone who, you know, outside of a black rope, right? right? One of the things that I'd like to do is, especially with the youth, we all know that in 2017, 2018, youth violence spiked, particularly mm-hmm. gun violence among youth, okay? Well, if a child comes to my courtroom, you know, they are already in big trouble, right? You have been classified as an adult, you know, which means that, you know, a violent crime is attached. And the first time we are engaging is when you're seeing me in the black robe. I think one of the things that could change that is going out to the church they attend, to the programs they attend, because there are so many amazing people who are trying to reach these lives and touch them before something horrible happens. You know, and and I hope not to sound gloatful, but just could you imagine a criminal court judge going to talk to them before, maybe after they've gotten suspended, right, for something stupid? I think that makes perfect sense. And then seeing (laughs) and say, hey, look, now you see me in the polo, you see me in the suit, Right, but you can talk to me without the black robe on. Right. But if you see me with this bla- with the black robe on, it's a whole different ball game. Right. And there's not a lot I can do at that point because I'm required to follow what the law says. Right. But it's my hope and understanding that if people see someone that looks like them, mm-hmm. right, that there is a at least hope or understanding that this person cares. This person understands, this person knows, or at least has heard my plight and what it could be, and that I'm not just written off or, you know, devalued because you couldn't understand the situation that I was in. Right, and I think, um, I think that, 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 that silver servant, like, goes beyond just the bench, right? And I think that'll be amazing if, if judges of all sorts were able to, to meet, you know, youth and other people where they are before they got to their court, what what big of a difference could they could that make in that person's or their child's or the adults, whoever it may be, life. Yeah. Um and you also be able to give them the realities. Like, That's, hey, look, look, <laughs> like, you see me now and I'm here trying to stop right. you from getting to if you won't see me in a different light. So I think that'd be powerful. And also too, not on some like scared straight stuff. Because right. I think if we're dealing with people right. who have already experienced trauma, somebody doesn't have a mother or father, or someone is being raised by a sibling that is three or four years older, coming in them and trying to scare them is just a repeat of the trauma they've already suffered their right. whole life. Right. And so again with this understanding that like, you know, we're not coming in trying to scare you. I'm right. coming in to say that look, I I can understand and get how you've gotten here. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you this, this road you are on, this way you are walking will only lead to certain places and you're not gonna like any of them. You know, what could be done? What are you missing? What are you needing? You know, that could help absolve this plan of what we've got or the way we're going. You know, because, you know, that's, again, with this, you know, trying to scare people into doing the right thing is not meeting people where they are. Right. You know, because, you know, if, if scaring folk worked, then we wouldn't be here. Right. So you can't scare someone right. to do the right thing if we don't understand the reason for the decisions they've made. 
going back to community. You're a black man. The criminal justice system hasn't treated us yeah. favorably no. since the history of this country. Yeah. Right? Since since many of us were brought yes. over here in, in, on slave ships. In bondage. Yeah. In bondage. Shackled. How does your blackness play into your role in the criminal legal system as potential judge? And that can be from a representation standpoint, cultural competency, understanding, lived experiences, uh, the proximity to just the dangers of being black yeah. in this country in correlation with the, yeah. the criminal legal system, the law enforcement. <laughs> I, I use it as a disarming mechanism because, mm. you know, whether it be in Davidson County, Murfreesboro, Franklin, you know, people are going to make assumptions about the black guy coming in a suit, you know. Some might presume, or maybe I'm a lawyer, or maybe I was just smart enough to dress up for court. You know, I get that a lot. Oh, you're a lawyer? You know, yeah, I'm the lawyer. This is a briefcase, Microaggressions. right? Microaggressions. Um, I, I use it when speaking with a lot of my clients in the understanding that, you know, I'm not going to ever forget who you are. I am not telling you this information because I want to be through with your case or I want to be done. If you say that something happened that nobody would believe, you know, like an, an example I've got, um, law enforcement. The, I have a client who's sitting in the car um, with a pack of cigarettes on his lap. He told me the officer walked, just walked up to him, reached in the car, took the cigarettes, you know, and said, what's this? Because there was a little, pink, uh, little packet and it looked like it had drugs in it. My client was honest and told him it was some drugs, you know. And I remember thinking like, man, like, what do you mean? He just walked up, right. reached inside your car and, you know, it took it out. You know, because a lot of people are like, well, officers know not to do that. But I said, you know, this person's adamant. He said this is what happened. And again, right, because I want to highlight, you know, we're having a hearing. I asked the officer directly, I said, well, did you know, did you reach in and grab cigarettes from the car? And he was like, yeah, I did. I said, you didn't say who you were or, you know, going through all the illegal search and seizure stuff, you know. And so in that instance, it was eye-opening for me that, you know, while you can't believe everything a client might tell you, you should investigate or at least figure out if something did or could happen. Mm -hmm. Moreover, you know, not all law enforcement is bad, crooked, or dirty because, you know, the case ended up getting dismissed because that is a clear violation of someone's constitutional rights. But I spoke to that officer and commended them for their honesty. I commended them for, you know, being under oath and doing the right thing, which seems like a bare minimum, but, you know, I want to make sure that's highlighted so that we can encourage and continue that behavior. So, you know, my, how my blackness plays in, it changes every single day. Mm -hmm. The varying degrees of how it's used, whether mm -hmm. it be from, you know, <laughs> underestimating me, right. right? Whether it be from, you know, thinking that I might come in combative or, or, or because of some preconceived notion about how black men are, you right. know? But 
it, it is that duality, that code that right. we all know about that we have to put on for certain places and spaces. Right. And I think it's also a, another component to it, too, especially um, if elected judge. We, we, we harder on each other a lot of times. And I say, oh, okay, well, you know, Kyle, you know, he looks like me. Okay, I'm, I got a shot, you know, to, you know, I, I, might, yeah. I might be going home. Yeah. And maybe you don't make the decision that I feel is favorable to me because I'm basing it off our blackness, not off anything yeah. else. Yeah. And because of that, well, you know, Kyle ain't for black folks. I know. You know, and you might have heard this before during your, you know, in your attorney days, but that's how, that's what we do. Rightfully so, wrongfully so, that's what we do. Um, how do you navigate? How do you balance those? Um, just being, you know, sure of yourself. Because sure. it happens, and it will happen. Of course. That's such an excellent question and point. And, you know, I will say, unfortunately, that, you know, some, you know, black judges are, in fact, tougher. You know, under, I think, maybe this misguided belief that, you know, it's a form of protection or wanting them to tough love or, you know, making it out that like, hey, you know, you could be where I am, but you've got to walk the walk, talk the talk, you've mm -hmm. got to do right. And so there is this, you know, it's okay to be, you know, just a little bit more punitive to people that look like you. And I don't mm -hmm. know if it's from a fear that maybe being exposed or, you know, that if it gets out that, oh, well, you're being lenient on black people, well, you're a black person. And so what's that mean? You know, without ever asking the question of, okay, well, so if a white judge is leaning on white people, does that mean that that equa equals racism? Which, which our whole system says, you know. And so, again, <laughs> going back to the audacity and the daring, you know, I'm not going to have to telegraph what I do. I'm not going to have to say it or claim right. it, but I'm not going to be afraid to show mercy. I'm mm -hmm. not going to be afraid to show leniency to someone of color simply to try to put on so that everyone can know, okay, well, because I should not have to be tougher on black people to make it appear that I'm equal for everyone mm. right like I don't like I don't believe that white judges are thinking okay well let me make sure I'm tougher on my white people in front of me so that you know it appears that I'm not lenient on them like You're that right. just that nexus is flawed significantly and that's why I said you know it's an eight-year term right. right you know like what do I plan to do I, I plan to do what I said I plan to espouse the values and convictions that I believe make a just system, it will look a little different. It should look a little different. And there is no person in my pocket, there is no money I've received that could have any hold or right. threat or even gentle suggestion that, hey, now, Kyle, you're getting a little uh, reckless. And I said, no, you know, right. I'm going to do what I believe is right and not calculate or put this nexus on. But what is, you know, am I appearing too lenient on black people or people right. of color? You know, I'm going to do what I think is right for everybody. Because a good judge benefits everybody that's in front of them. I talk about, you know, I've seen what a great judge can do. Right, whether white, black, brown, anything, a great judge can positively impact someone's life. Accountability <clears throat> is a big deal, especially if you're talking about eight years. Mm -hmm. um, one of the best ways I feel community can hold judges accountable is court watch. Mm 
um, gives gives community members one to kind of see what happens in the courtroom because nobody wants to just be in court, right? <laughs> but other than you know, if you're studying, right? <laughs> so if you can be there under you know different circumstances where you can really evaluate, see what goes on, see different judges, see how to preside, and things like that. So, um, do you welcome something like court watch? I absolutely do. I do have to give a caveat, right? Okay. In that, just like in a trial, right, what you might see on TV is probably a third of what has been argued or talked about. There are certain things that must remain confidential and secret, and it, whether it be for the benefit of the defendant or for the benefit of the alleged victim, if there is one. I would hope for some understanding, and I think that's where the trust factor comes in. That even, because to your question about, okay, well, yeah, Kyle didn't go my way, or he did something I would have done differently. You know, I believe everyone, most people are reasonable, right? I, I think that if that person is treated with respect, if that person felt heard, if that person believed that they were given the full opportunity to present their defense case, whatever you want to call it, that while they might disagree or wish that it could have gone differently, that it won't be the see there, you know, he don't care about black people. Let's see, you know, because, you know, the majority of the people I'm speaking with don't want handouts. They don't want favors. They just want to be treated the same as everyone else. Right. And that might appear simple, but it's not, you know, because you have to be conscious. You have to be cognizant of it. And so a lot of times the people that feel slighted or have been made to feel less than were disrespected. They might have been spoken down to. Mm -hmm. They might have not had an opportunity to say what they needed to or wanted to. And I think that's what resonates. That's what you take away. You know, people don't remember what was said, but people remember how they made them feel. People right. remember how they feel. Right. And there have been tons of times where I've been in front of judges and it didn't go my way. <laughs> But I've got no beef with that judge. I have no question about whether or not was, were we heard because I know <clears throat> we were treated with respect, dignity, and given an opportunity to present. Right. And when, as long as that's present, I think the system can keep going because, of course, you know, I'm not going to make everybody happy. Right? Right. That's impossible. Right. But I think I would like for everyone to be able to say, he showed me respect. Right. Everyone able to say, he showed my family respect. Right. He gave due diligence, and he cared about what he was doing and understood the impact that it's going to have on everybody involved. And I think, look, I think court watches, too, takes away a lot of that, um, if done right. Yeah. Uh, takes away a lot of that, like, intimidation, right? If I know I'm an organization or I'm bringing a group in, I can, I can let your assistant know beforehand, hey, I got this organization coming, we're going to do court watch love to talk with you afterward if possible yeah right if we can do that and if i didn't see something or don't understand something because because i might not have a full context we can have that discussion afterwards and some things that you might be privy to tell me or not but there's just that 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 level of transparency at least maybe say okay well at least i know judge Kyle is ready to, mm -hmm. to to at least talk to me and i can come in and he's gonna be transparent and he's not gonna be like no nah, like i made my decision i don't have time like you know, figure it out, right? And so I just think um, that's one way to build that relationship with judges, not having to be buddy-buddy, but at least being say, hey, like, I, I 
Judge Parks is he he's, he'll talk with you. It kind of sounds like you're hoping for a balance, right? Kind of <laughs> hoping for some scrutiny yeah. to be understood that, like, it's not just a flat-out no, right, you know, right. in that, again, you know, I, I love that example of everyone has should have a shared goal. Mm -hmm. Because let me just say, yes, it, court watch is fine, right? It is public record. There are going to be situations and scenarios where, you know, it might not be, and I can't even tell you why it's not. And right. that's where the trust and the faith in what right. I'm doing, I would hope, can be exuded in other examples to say, okay, well, yeah, I don't like that, but he's been solid on all these other things, so it must be something that he's got to keep to himself or right. can't share. Right. But that idea of coming to a common ground, of wanting engagement, right, because, you know, um, the campaign has allowed me to go out and meet all of these amazing people, but... I won't be able to do it as much, obviously, because I'll be working, but that's not going to stop me from still going out and meeting and engaging with all these amazing people. Right. And I think that instances like that are a wonderful way to not only blend who I am, who I am as a person, but also the work that I'm doing and the service that I'm trying to give to this county. Right. I keep going back to this. Eight years. Yeah, man. It's a long time, people. <laughs> It's not like two, four. It's not like okay, no, we can man. we can get another person in there in the next two years. No, no, no. You got four years, then you got another four to wait. What does eight years look like? <laughs> well, Carol Parks. It means that it's twenty thirty, which means I've got my first kid is in college, and my two babies are what eleven and ten, mm -hmm. and so it is. I hope a different world for the better. I hope that with eight years of consistent leadership, of change, and a desire to do more, that at least for my part, I have made the system better. Mm. It looks like enough time to have been able, because one of the things that I'll say too, eight years is a in the criminal defense community is a known number because for certain felonies, that's the start of it, right? Mm -hmm. Eight years is kind of the minimum that you can get. And so I'm very intimate with just how long eight years can be. Mm -hmm. You know, you can go to college twice in eight years. You right. can have three Olympics in eight years, right? right? And so, you know, it is not lost on me this chunk of time, but if service is the forefront, if goodness, honor, and consistent leadership with proven results mm -hmm. that are given time to flourish, because there will be setbacks, there will be things that don't necessarily go the way you'd envision, right. but an adaptability to change and a faith that what you are doing that although might not be recognized is good and should continue, that in eight years from now, you know, I would have made Division Three Criminal Court a much, much more cohesive place and ingratiated in the full community of Davidson County with an understanding that whoever comes here is going to feel safe, mm -hmm. understood, and heard. Kyle, I want to leave you with the, the last words. Man, this has been awesome. 
but I think it's important for people to know how they can support you, yeah. find you, contact you, talk more about some of the creative, I think I would say, things that you want to do yeah. in our criminal court judges here in Davidson County. So one of the things that I really want to, so as a defense attorney, I've got to find services and programs for my clients to hopefully convince a judge or a district attorney that, you know, while this person might have committed this act, the way to stop that act from ever happening again, which is, I think, the ultimate goal of justice, right, whether, you know, every victim's family I've spoken to, they want to make sure it doesn't happen to someone else, okay? Right. If we are just locking people up and not treating or educating or in any way counseling, they're going to serve that time, they're going to get out, and they're going to do it again. Because how could they not? That's sounds, all they've known. Sounds like you want some restorative justice. Very, very much so. Very, very much so. And restorative justice as a concept is relatively new. It's been needed for a long time. But what that looks like is evolving and changing. But again, an acknowledgment of something we need. And, and here's the thing, too, back to the individuality of the cases. Restorative justice for this defendant and that victim might look completely different than the restorative justice for someone in a drug case where a family member was negatively affected by that. Right. And so, or a DUI or a vehicular assault where someone is, you know. It's not cookie cutter. It's not, and it can't be. Right. And I think that, you know, there's this kind of idea that justice should be able to apply to everybody. Otherwise, it's not just. But I think the opposite is true. I right. think that if we don't take the time and understanding and peel back the layers of the, you know, why, the how, the where, and the who, then, you know, we'll go back to easy or we'll go back to simple, you know, because I can understand how that concept got started, but seeing it in reality, it's just proof that it's, it, it, that doesn't work. It can't work. So how, can, so how can people reach out, support yeah. you, get in contact yes, with sir. you, all of that good stuff? Well, let me start. Campaign number is 615-200-7345. My website is www.voteforkyleparks.com. I'm on Facebook, uh, Kyle Parks for Judge, Instagram, Vote Kyle Parks for Judge. Um, but please, you know, engage with me. Call me, contact me, ask me whatever question you've got, you know, because this is the best time that I can communicate. This is the best time that I'd be able to reach and answer questions. Look me up, scrutinize me. I hope, do your research, do your whatever you need to to make this decision. Mm -hmm. The election starts April 13th to the 28th for early voting, and the big day is May 3rd. There are a lot of qualified people on this ballot. I encourage you to look them all up, you know, because it's not just me running. These elections will have more of an impact on your life than any presidential race, or even every Senate race, because these are the people that you could see or your family could see. Right. So it's important. And if, you know, if you don't like something that um, Cal did, you can always see him in Kroger's or Publix and, you know, can't do that with the president. Right. You can't do that with the Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah you can't. Yeah. But you you might see Cal, you, go. you know, in the in the fruit section. That's you know right. What I'm like, hold That's on. Right. <laughs> what's up, man? Yeah. Like, what's up? <laughs> what's going on? Yeah. Right. <laughs> but um, Cal, man, I appreciate this time. I appreciate too, you um, 
really sharing with us your really creative ways and create courageous ways and thoughts and perspectives about you know where i uh criminal legal system could potentially go uh what it could potentially look like what you yeah. want it to look like yeah. um and i think that's you know what what people should want to know um and should want to hear from from my candidates uh again eight years almost a decade and so uh this is crucial so yeah. i encourage people to go out there do your research not only after this interview you know um after you see this and look at this and um and learn more about um cal so thanks Thank cal you. and i do have one more thing i want no, to say no go ahead okay uh so deep dish conversations where is the pizza like i've been Everybody like we've got this really nice setup i see he's got all oh. the instruments but like you get me on here we got people speaking the pizza i got pizza right here and just so no pizza uh, for the candidates look, that's cool so look, i mean like look, i get it you look, know but so just look. i was told there would be pizza okay look, it's not in here i'm gonna make this clear right so look so we have this segment, this was a perspective segment, okay. and then we have our deep dish conversation season. There we go. The season is where we have the pizza. Okay. And then this I interview. Heard okay. the so, so, you know. When Sounds you like I might back, need to be back for the you, season. So you need to so be I back can, for the season. Uh, get some of this pizza. And then you can have free pizza, that right? But, you know, hey, you know, hey. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> they only hard about this pizza. I'm okay. telling you, bro. But, um, thank you, man. man this no, has thank been you. great. No, this has been awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Till next oh, time. Man. Dope. All right.